Welcome to the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. Join host Dr. Stefan Dillinger for lively discussions with leading epigenetics researchers. Hear about their past experiments, what they're working on now, and what's coming next. You know their papers, now get to know them and discover the stories behind the science. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast. Today I'm happy to welcome Björn Schumacher from the Institute for Genome Stability in Aging and Disease at the University of Cologne on this show. Please let me briefly introduce you to our audience. You did your PhD at the Max Planck Institute for Biochemistry from 2000 to 2004. You then moved on to do a postdoc at the Erasmus Medical Center in Rotterdam. Then in 2009, you started your own group as a junior group leader at the Cologne Excellent Cluster Cellular Stress Responses in Aging-Associated Diseases. And since 2013, you are a full professor and director of the Institute for Genome Stability in Aging and Disease at the Medical Faculty at the University of Cologne. A question I'd like to ask every guest to start off this podcast is, how did you become interested in biology in the first place and then in pursuing a career in science? Oh, that happened essentially in high school already in biology class that I realized how many unresolved uh, questions there are as to how life functions. And already then, actually, I became specifically interested in the aging process because it's an unresolved problem. And uh, it's something that affects every human being sooner or later. Uh, that's exactly. Uh, so if you come to your science, uh, that, as you just mentioned, centers. I mean, you did not mentioned that you're working on it now, but you were interested in already um, back then um, that centers around DNA repair and its influence on aging. I want to start with a paper from the year 2008. Um, I think this is where your aging journey started in a way. Um, there you tried to identify mechanisms that regulate mammalian long longevity. Um, can you talk about this study and what you found about the mechanism? So... That my interest in DNA repair started when it was realized that um, DNA repair defects in humans accelerate aging. So one mutation in a DNA repair gene is sufficient to condense the entire aging process to one decade in life in humans. So that told me that there's something fundamentally important about maintaining the DNA, the genome. And what we started out then doing is to to ask whether there's anything, first of all, that happens in mice that model these very complex human diseases that happens there in an accelerated fashion that would also happen in normal aging. Because it was far from clear that these disorders that are pediatric disorders that happen very early in life are really truly mirroring the aging process. So that was the first question. Are we really studying aging? Are, is what happens when DNA repair is, is not functioning really the same thing that happens in aging? And the most unbiased approach that you could take for that um, was transcriptome analysis. Why? Because you could now look at the expression of all the genes and without limiting yourself to anything, you could just ask, are similar things happening on this, on this broad uh, global level that would also happen in aging? And the answer was yes, strikingly yes. The things that happened within two weeks in these mice are actually something that happens over the course of two to three years in a normal mouse. Then the next thing was, 
that genetic mechanisms of longevity had been identified in the very early 1990s in the uh, in the model organisms of the nematode worm that could regulate the lifespan of an animal. And so the second question we ask is whether these longevity mechanisms, these aging mechanisms, were in any way responding to DNA damage. And we identified this longevity assurance mechanisms are in fact triggered in these um, in these uh, denaropad effective mice, and they are triggered in normal aging as what we call a survival response, a response how um, an animal tries to survive despite having this onslaught of accumulation of DNA damage. So that was really an initiator that taught us two important lessons. One is that, yes, what happens in an accelerated fashion very early is in fact the same thing that happens in aging. And the genetic mechanisms of, of uh, uh, longevity are actually present in this response. So what you wanted to, to see there is, is it correlation or is it causative, right? So um, is it only happening because it's also happening uh, alongside uh, aging or is it really causative to, to the aging? So this is exactly what we then approached and addressed in our next paper uh, that we published uh, just a year later, where we asked the question whether these longevity assurances, survival response mechanisms are in fact really a response mechanisms to persistent DNA damage. This is exactly what we found. We found that key mediators of mammalian longevity, the highly conserved mediators of longevity, namely the somatotropic access regulator, the IGF-1 receptor, the growth hormone receptor, these are key mediators of, the, uh, of longevity in mammals. They are actually responding to DNA damage. They are part of the response to particularly chronic persistent DNA damage. They downregulate and they induce a stress response program um, that we could later then actually show that they really can compensate for the presence and accumulation of DNA damage. So it's a real bona fide response to DNA damage. So the DNA damage, um, you just said that, that it's like, um, yeah, triggering some programs but what is it exactly what what the stain dna damage then does is it that transcription in those areas that the dna damage occurs is somehow um yeah affected or or down regulated or what is it exactly that the dna damage then does um, to the aging process so the particular problem of dna damage in the aging process are, are specifically when dna damage blocks transcription and blocks replication. The blockage of replication, that will then deprive the ability of, for example, renewable uh, tissues to, uh, to replenish from proliferating stem cells and progenitor cells. So that's one issue. But the issue that really affects every single cell, and particularly also those cells that are post-mitotic and they, some of them in humans have been generated in through embryonic development, such as neurons. These cells are particularly affected by DNA damage that blocks transcription. Because all they do with their genome essentially is 
transcribing genes. And they require transcription of genes uh, to fulfill any of their function and, in fact, to survive. But DNA damage that inevitably occurs, it occurs by the tens of thousands every day in every single cell of the human body, when they block transcription, they affect any cell and particularly the post-mitotic cells that are critically dependent on constant maintenance because some of them can never be replaced. So essentially what happens there is that when DNA damage blocks transcription, then the cells respond and they respond in a way that had been really unknown for a very long time because the entire field was much more concerned with proliferating cells, cancer cells and all that. But how cell now responds to transcription blockage had been really unknown. And that's where we found that what happens once there's a blockage of transcription, cells respond with uh, down-regulating uh, these these uh, the, these growth receptors that then are associated with induction of stress responses, um, and so these are mechanisms that we find are highly conserved. We then, in the in the years afterwards, really went to this uh, favorite genetic model of longevity, the the nematode worm Cineraptitis elegans, because there we could now really explore genetically. What is the function of this response? What's the consequence of this response? And uh, so there also was very important that we, in, this, in the somatic tissues of the worm, we have post-mitotic cells. A third of them are, in fact, neurons that are really a model for this novel type of DNA damage response affecting differentiated sometimes. Yeah, before we come to the, your work in C. elegans, um, there is one other question. So we just talked about post-mitotic somatic cells, um, but there is also like a second kind of, of cells in a human body, or there are obviously more than that, but, but what I was want to get at is the germ cells, right? So there is if you, there is uh, DNA damage in germ cells, and if germ cells affect, are affected, then it's much more worse or different than in somatic cells, maybe. So how does uh, DNA damage in germ cells affect the somatic tissue and what is maybe the difference of, of both? So germ cells are really absolutely fascinating. Just, just imagine that our germ cells in modern Homo sapiens are 200,000 years old, one lineage, almost, almost not changed, very few genetic changes. And we can trace them even much, much further back um, to our ancestral species in a continuum of life. And how can, how can genomes be maintained for so long? That's a fascinating question. And that's why we're studying germ cells, because germ cells have this extraordinary capacity to maintain genomes. And they do that with two strategies. One strategy is selection. Uh, there is a, a very tight selection on which germ cells really make it through and then produce an offspring. And the second important factor is DNA repair. There's a very high DNA repair capacity in germ cells that differ in different uh, stages of germ cells um, uh, from the primordial ones to the mature um, uh, germ cells. And they also differ between the sexes. The male and female germ cells are very different. But in general, we can say that germ cells, uh, in, for example, in humans, have by an order of magnitude lower mutation rates than the somatic cells because somatic cells only need to 
last for one generation, only for the lifespan of an individual. Then they are disposable. Uh, um, and so... So it's not so important the, to is, keep them... It's not so important to keep them happy. They are, they are completely... They only need to last for as long as it takes for the germline to produce offspring. Once the offspring are, are happy and alive and can take over, the soma is no longer... It's no longer required. It's in fact disposable, as Tom Kirkwood had uh, uh, once um, uh, formulated it. So, uh, if we move on to to the things that we just talked about in C. elegans, um, you investigated mutations in C. elegans uh, that led to growth delay, genome instability, and accelerated uh, functional decline. So, what did you find in this study with respect to development and aging? So development and aging are two very um, interrelated <coughs> processes. Um, and so uh, we find that that um, the, the mechanisms that, re that regulate aging are essentially primarily have been selected for functions in development. And so we, we find that these DNA damage responses, these longevity assurance responses to DNA damage, are actually functioning already in, in during development where they have been really selected for because that's where our 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 um, phenotypic expression of genes is really under under a very tight selection um, and they so they respond already during uh, development they can actually already raise the tolerance to DNA damage and they happen to do the same during aging because the very same mechanisms help you to live longer that also help you to develop um, even when you cannot repair DNA damage. So it's very interesting to study development and you will find out very exciting things that play an important role in aging because development is really uh, under, under utmost um, selection and a lot of pressure to optimize fitness there. And with C. elegans, I mean, the development is really well understood, right? So there is probably, that's a big advantage in studying those kind of processes. C. elegans is a, is a fabulous model. Why is it so good? Because it's a metazone, so it has different cell types, different tissues. Um, but at the same time, it's very simple. It has less than 1,000 uh, somatic cells. Indeed, we know that it's exactly 959 cells, of which 302 are neurons. So we know so exactly many things about this worm. And then when we go and, and, and uh, you know, in our discovery science, we find new phenomena, new aspects of biology in the worm. We can then go to, to uh, the mouse or to human cells. And invariably, we found that, that they are highly conserved processes. Um, But what's really important in biology is to study biological processes in the context of an organism, um, because we all our cells function invariably in the context of an organism. They, they are not isolated. They're in constant interaction with everything else in the body. And that's why simple animal models are so important to really advance our understanding of the biology of genome stability and of aging. So what did you then find uh, kind of parallels between development and aging in terms of DNA damage? So there are, there are a lot of parallels, particularly the uh, regulation of the insulin-like signaling. So in, in worms, there's already the 
ancestral form of what in humans became the uh, somatotropic axis. So important longevity mechanisms are triggered by downregulation of the IGF-1 receptor. Um, and that is a primarily a, a function it, it does to development, where it can also regulate very, very long-lived forms of larvae that can outlive a normal worm and can then perfectly rejuvenate. Uh, so these processes, um, they then trigger, so this downregulation of the insulin-like signaling that is triggered also in response to DNA damage, that's what we found, then activates a critical transcription factor that's called DAF16. In humans, it's FOXO3A, for example. DAF16 is this transcription factor that then drives forward a, a stress response program that elevates the tolerance to DNA damage. And we postulated then that there are two main strategies of longevity uh, um, assurance. One is DNA repair. We know that DNA repair is absolutely essential to allow us to live as long as we do. So without DNA uh, repair, we accelerate aging in humans to the first decade of life sometimes. So DNA repair is required to slow down the accumulation of damage um, throughout life. Now this response, this longevity assurance response that is mediated, for example, through the attenuation of insulin-like signaling, activation of DAF16, FOXO transcription factors, stress response induction. These uh, mechanisms do something profoundly different. They instead raise the threshold until when DNA damage accumulation can be tolerated. And they are, of course, then also much more um, flexible, much more uh, have a much greater plasticity in responding to DNA damage. It's only it's 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 only signaling mechanisms that you can activate, inactivate, have more active, less active. So they can really modulate um, the uh, the aging process, the rate of aging, um, by then responding by um, a raising and lowering threshold of tolerating the DNA damage accumulation that invariably, even with the most perfect DNA repair, will still occur. What does what does it mean, like the threshold? Does it mean um, until you start to repair it, or does it mean until you start programmed cell death? <laughs> or or what does it mean, that the, the threshold or tolerance? So as thresholds, you said yeah. thresholds are very important to understand that um, that there are um, uh, th that that they decide whether you can live or whether you die, whether your cells are functional or whether they are not. And the dysfunction of cells is much more much broader than these traditional types of DNA damage responses, apoptosis, senescence, because there can be also a cell that is alive but that is that cannot fulfill its function. And eventually, of course, such cells might degenerate and, and then uh, succumb. But the dysfunction uh, happens much earlier. And so there's a certain leeway of when, how long a cell can fulfill its function and when it will uh, be dysfunctional or when it will even degenerate. And understanding these, these tolerance mechanisms is then of fundamental importance to uh, assure and to prolong the function and the integrity of cells and tissues. Um, and so modulating these thresholds is something very important. 
Um, and that allows then also to maybe even reinstate some functioning um, and prolong the functioning of cells. Um, and the thresholds are really the decisive um, a point in how cells respond to DNA damage. To give you an example, different cell types have enormously different sensitivities to undergo apoptosis after DNA damage. So for example, oocytes in mice are extraordinarily sensitive to DNA damage. After three to five double strand breaks, they undergo apoptosis, no point of return, they just die. In humans, this, um, uh, this apoptotic response is already much more variable. Um, they can, they can uh, tolerate about 10 times more um, uh, uh, strength breaks before they go into, into apoptosis. Other cell types um, are much more refractile. Neurons, for example, can survive uh, uh, double strand, high loads of double strand breaks, um, while pre um, uh, stem cells that are requ that require to proliferate might be much more sensitive. That's why uh, in, in uh, radiation therapy, for example, um, particular proliferative cell types in the intestine, in the hair follicles are particularly affected by um, the genotoxic uh, therapy. So, and that's all that has very little to do with the actual load of DNA damage and what DNA damage directly does to the genome, but it has all to do about the response when the threshold to eliminate a cell is reached. And that is set with every cell type has a different uh, threshold when it will, uh, it will be eliminated. Another connection between the genome and the response or a cell's response to the, you know, the environment, the, the, the genome itself is histone post-translational modifications. Uh, and of course, as being the epigenetics podcast, this is what we are also interested in. So you also looked at histone PTMs uh, that might be involved in the response to DNA damage. So which histone PTMs did you specifically look at? And could you find something about their function? So the epigenetic response to DNA damage is, is very exciting because epigenetic mechanisms play a role in many different uh, aspects of the DNA repair process. Uh, they already determine vulnerability to DNA damage. They determine accessibility of repair mechanisms. And as we found, they determine what happens afterwards. Um, how homeostatic processes are restored after DNA damage. And we found a very specific effect of one histone modifications, that is the uh, H3K4 dimethylation. Uh, this histone modifications is specifically associated with transcription elongation. And I, I uh, mentioned earlier that a particular problem for a particular for a post-mitotic cell, is when DNA damage blocks transcription and requires transcription-coupled repair to remove the lesions. We know that a defect in transcription-coupled repair is particularly leading to all kinds of uh, premature aging uh, pathologies in humans. The entire spectrum from neurodegeneration um, to atherosclerosis um, and so transcription blocking lesions are very, very important. And, but it's not only the repair of the lesion, because once transcription blocking lesions are detected in the genome, there are profound changes 
global changes in homeostatic processes. There's a reduction of overall transcription. There's a reduction of overall translation. And that's, of course, can compromise the entire functionality of a cell. Now, we found that after completion of repair, the H3, um, uh, H3K4 dimethylation is specifically then deposited along the open reading frames of genes that then can restore transcription and restore protein translation and restore protein homeostasis, for example, through uh, proteasomal uh, uh, genes. Now, um, that, that uh, specific mark is deposited by the MLL compass complex. And if you now have a defect in the MLL compass complex and you fail to deposit the dimethyl marks on H3K4, then the animals cannot recover from the, from the transcription blocking lesions. They then cannot develop when it's during development or they, they die age prematurely and die early if the damage occurs in adulthood. When you do the opposite, when you then um, abrogate the demethylase, in this case it's SPR5, for example, if you, in, if you inhibit the demethylase, you do the opposite. You then boost the deposition of H3K4 dimethylation, and then you, you uh, boost the recovery from the DNA damage, and they more profoundly uh, re uh, recover um, with with higher recovery of protein biosynthesis and protein homeostasis, and thereby induce resistance. So these animals become more resistant. They live longer after DNA damage. And so this is really a mechanism where an epigenetic modification links a causal mechanisms of aging, which is DNA damage and the DNA repair process via its epigenetic uh, 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 regulation to protein homeostasis, which is also a very important process in the aging, uh, in, in the aging process. So another mark that is uh, coupled to transcription and to um, uh, yeah, maybe a, a gene expression is H3K36 uh, methylation. Did you also look at the connection between those or was it like only H3K4 dimethylation that you looked at? The reason we looked here specifically at uh, H3K4 dimethylation is because we had the phenotypes, these um, uh, antagonistic phenotypes of the, um, of the composition of the uh, regulatory subunits of the MLA compass complex and the, uh, the, the uh, uh, opposite function of specific demethylases. That really let us home in on this H3K4 dimethylation, but it's very well possible that additional uh, other histone modifications also play a role there. Uh, we find uh, that many uh, histone remodeling genes are affecting the uh, sensitivity to DNA damage, particularly to transcription blocking types of DNA damage. So there's a much higher broader complexity of the involvement uh, of histone remodelers. And that's something we are profoundly interested in and that we are will explore in the future. So one tool to measure aging are epigenetic clocks. And um, yeah, those 
are able to, to measure the chron chronological age of an organism. Um, you also worked on an aging clock and it's called a bit age. Um, and I quote from the abstract and there it says, um, predicts biological age with an accuracy that is close to the theoretical limit. And uh, I would be interested, what does theoretical limit mean in this context and how does this clock work? Yeah, so... Um Aging clocks are very important to make the aging process quantifiable, measurable. Why is that important? Because um, uh, to just know someone's age in itself is not a particular important information because you can look up your chronological age just by your date of birth. But then uh, humans age at very different rates. While chronologically um, at the age of 50, um, Most people will be around also biologically that age, but some people will already have a higher risk to develop disease. Some people uh, are in better shape and might be biologically longer, might be still further away from developing age-related disease. So this is one thing that, in, uh, that an aging clock could measure. The next thing it could measure, which is even much more important, is whether if you now do an intervention, that is supposed to delay aging and lower the risk of developing age-related diseases. Um, how do you measure such an effect of an intervention? You cannot wait to see whether you die in 20 or 30 years, um, but you need something now. You need something that directly tells you whether an intervention is beneficial or might even have adverse effects. And therefore, you need to measure something in a short period of time that tells you whether you accelerate or decelerate aging, whether you higher or lower your risk to develop disease. So in recent years, epigenetic clocks have been devised because um, uh, they are uh, epigenetic marks, CPG marks are very easily uh, quantifiable um, and they are very accurate in predicting chronological age. There's ongoing work now to see in how far also biological age can be Uh, can be measured by that. But that's a complicated thing in humans and even in mice to do because often you do not know um, how uh, phenotypically old animals are. That's why we switch to C. elegans because at C. elegans we know that uh, the exact lifespan effect and the aging trajectory effect of a large, of a plethora of genetic uh, uh, interventions, of pharmacological intervention, of environmental intervention, nutritional interventions, all of this we know. We know exactly how such interventions affect the lifespan of the animal. In C. elegans, we do not have uh, DNA methylation, so uh, we, we cannot use uh, uh, the methylation clocks, but uh, we can use transcriptome data. Because we have a plethora of transcriptome data. So we, we took a thousand different samples from many different labs that were published where we knew we had the transcriptome data of these, these uh, animals, these, these worms, and we had the lifespan data uh, that were associated in the same paper. So we knew both of these, uh, uh, both of these data sets were known to us. So then we, uh, the problem of transcriptome data thus far was always that there's a lot of variability in the, in the uh, transcript abundance in every sample. And so that precluded so far to develop, develop accurate clocks because there's just too much variation. So that's where our bit age clock came in because bit age stands for binarized transcriptome clock. 
and the binary and so we we used a very simple method of binarizing the um, the uh, mRNA levels. We either said relative in comparison to the entire um, uh, set of RNAs is something in the upper 50% or lower 50%. So we binarized them to one or zero. Um, and that really eliminated all the variability uh, that just gives uh, random variants. And that then allowed us to derive an extremely accurate clock that could then predict as early as the first day of adulthood how long an animal will live when it's, for example, subjected to a, a, a genetic mutation that make it long-lived or short-lived or a pharmacological treatment or nutritional interventions or what have you, extremely accurate. And why now is it at the limit uh, of the theoretical limit? It's just simply that the, um, the, the in every lifespan experiment, you can you sample your, your population of worms once a day. So you have plus minus 12 hours. So that's, of course, you don't monitor them every second of their life. So you have once a day data, and that gives you already an inherent variability. And we came very close to this inherent uh, variability of the type of experiments that are typically done. That's why it's really mm -hmm. at the almost at the theoretical level of accuracy. So this year, uh, which is now 2023, um, Again, two high-impact papers out of your lab were published in Nature and NSMBC. No, NSMB, not NSMBC, but NSMB. And the first one focuses on the inheritance of paternal DNA damage by histone-mediated repair restriction. Um, what did you learn for this paper about the inheritance of paternal DNA damage? So this paper was came to a complete surprise of our first uh, observation, where we found that DNA damage that here we in, uh, induce by ionizing radiation, so double strand breaks, that they have a transgenerational effect. So specifically, when we induce DNA damage in mature sperm, they are completely capable of fertilizing an egg, give rise to a new animal, but that animal then that the progeny of that animal has a very high embryonic lethality. And that was very surprising because when we do the same thing, but we now uh, induce DNA damage in oversides, they are, the, the fertilized egg will just die, which is what everybody expected. But only when it's the damage has occurred in the, in the mature sperm, they, they can give rise to Uh, in next generation, but then transgenerational lethality. Then we explored how could that be? That was a completely new uh, new phenomenon that has never been observed before. And then we found that it's very specific vulnerability of mature sperm. Why? Because mature sperm has an extremely condensed chromatin structure. It's so highly condensed that DNA repair just cannot access the damage. But this, uh, uh, this damaged mature spermatozoa can still fertilize an egg. And we know that also in mammals, uh, damaged uh, mature sperm can fertilize eggs just fine. And what happens then is that only the maternal DNA repair machinery acts on the damaged paternal DNA. 
but it doesn't use the mother's uh, DNA as a template, but instead it just glues together ends of the, the broken ends of the paternal DNA. And it uses a repair mechanism that has thus far before our work thought to be a really backup of a backup mechanism, the so-called polymerase theta-mediated end joining. And here, however, it's the primary mechanism of repair, the first line repair mechanisms of the, uh, the maternal repair machinery acting on paternal DNA damage. And it, it is an error-prone mechanism. So it just puts together ends and it induces structure variance within the paternal, uh, within the paternal uh, genome. This now, this embryo grows up now to an, uh, to an adult anima. And we see genome instability all over the place in this anima. We see uh, a, a lagging chromosome, broken chromosomes. We see all kind of genomic aberrations which we believe is the so-called breakage fusion bridge cycle that Barbara McClintock had observed in, 90, in the early 1940s. And, the, the, and we found now that the, that the driving mechanisms for that are these structure variants that are formed in the zygote. And so there's recurrent um, uh, uh, breaks in every cell, in every cytokinesis induced. And now, in the even in the germ cells of this um, of of these offspring, these breaks are not repaired, and so we wondered why are they not repaired? Why in the germ cells we know there's all these accurate repair mechanisms? There is now homologous recombination repair, but it doesn't help. Why is that? And so through mass spectrometry, we find then that there's actually a huge induction of the H1 linker histone in this progeny that carried DNA damage from the paternal genome. And the, the and elevation of histone H1 linker um, is known to promote heterochromatization. And so then we looked for heterochromatin marks, um, the H3K9 trimethylation, and we find it's hugely induced in these progenies, particularly in the germ cells, it's hugely induced. So we hypothesized that maybe this heterochromatization might prevent the recruitment of homologous recombination repair. So that's what we, then what we did was we uh, we eliminated a, a subunit of the um, H1 um, uh, histone, the HIST24, or a heterochromatin uh, factor, HPL1. And when we take those out, we restore viability of the uh, of the transgeneration of the of their offspring and this viability is restored because now without the heterochromatization we allow access to homologous recombination repair that now recognizes all these breaks that have reoccurred and these uh, breaks are then accurately repaired and the and the uh, f2 generation can survive and uh, so the, the really culprit is here is that essentially the mother and the father are kind of uh, partners in crime in inducing structural variance because the, the inability of the mature sperm to repair paired with the inaccuracy of the maternal TMEJ repair machinery, they result in the structural variance. And then we looked actually whether this 
also occurs naturally. So we uh, looked at both um, mutation accumulation experiments in worms, as well as in natural isolates, 540 natural isolates of C. elegans in different parts of the world that have um, uh, evolved uh, um, in separation for, for many, many years, that we find the exact same structure variants that we found formed by these maternal TMEJ on, on uh, broken paternal DNA. And then we actually looked in human genome sequences and we find the exact same structure variants that have the typical um, TMEJ signature in the, at the sites of the structure variants. And we found that also in humans, just like in worms, they all come from the paternal genome. So this is a highly conserved uh, mechanism, and that is responsible uh, for uh, probably also for us in humans for the structure variants that occur in the human gene in the germline genome. And because there is less heterochromatin in somatic cells, this doesn't occur in somatic cells then? Right, so, but in somatic cells you have much less, uh, at least in C. elegans, much less um, um, a homologous recombination repair to start with. And uh, so the breaks are just uh, around there. Um, but of course, the consequences of the structure variants are then affecting uh, the soma. So for example, in humans, uh, it's known that the, the vast increase that we are currently witnessing of neurodevelopmental disorders, that is linked actually to paternal age um, and very likely triggered by the uh, structure variants that occur de novo in the paternal genome. So it's a real, the outcome, the pathologies that, that, that result from these de novo mutations, they, we can, they, those are probably very much linked to develop neurodevelopmental disorders such as autism, for example. It's, it's been hugely increased in the last 20 years. And uh, likely uh, this increase is really associated with the increased um, paternal age um, that we currently have that you know, people decide to have children later in life. And there is a certain risk for that. Uh, and lastly, um, the last paper I just mentioned, you looked at the dream complex and its role in somatic DNA repair. So what did you find uh, about the dream complex in this context? So um, we've, we found the very first master regulator of DNA repair. So that's, that's been a very, very long ongoing question in the field. Is there something that would regulate not one single repair mechanism, but actually the plethora of our all our distinct DNA repair machineries? That was thus far really unknown. And the way we ask that question is how comes that germ cells are so much better at repairing DNA than somatic cells? And that's again a question we can start asking in our favorite uh, models, the elegance, because germline and soma are so different. And we asked whether, first of all, whether there are any common mechanisms in DNA repair gene expression. And uh, the and C. elegans have much much simpler promoter structures than mammals, so we could actually interrogate whether there is an over um, uh, an over representation um, of certain promoter elements in DNA repair genes, and then we found one specific target site of a transcription repressor 
that was present in the majority of DNA damage response genes in C. elegans. And this is the um, CDE-CHR site, which is the bona fide target site of the so-called dream complex. And the dream complex is a transcription repressor that binds this element and represses the target gene. Now we knew that the dream complex is specifically active in somatic cells, but not active in germ cells. And similarly in humans, this very highly conserved dream complex is active in G1 and G0, um, but not during active cell cycle, not during the S phase. So um, then we ask whether this dream complex, if it is specifically assembled in somatic cells, does it curb the capacity of somatic cells to repair DNA? While in germ cells where it's not assembled and it wouldn't repress gene repair genes, these, are, uh, the, these, uh, these repair genes are, are highly expressed and then are very capable in removing DNA damage in germ cells. So then we looked at different mutants in all these different subunits of the dream complex, and we found that they are significantly elevated resistance to DNA damage in, the, in all the somatic cells. And the, the thing that was really absolutely novel is that it was not only one type of DNA damage that was now, um, that the animals now became very resistant to, but any type of DNA damage that we tried. And we tried very, very different types of DNA damage. And we found that what actually, what then in fact happens is that when we eliminate the dream complex, that now DNA repair genes are induced and DNA repair genes acting in all the different repair mechanisms, whether it's homologous recombination, non-homologous antrony, mismatch repair, and nucleotide excision, base excision repair, you name it, all these genes that operate in all these different repair mechanisms are derepressed in the soma. And then we actually can measure that the DNA repair kinetics are enhanced and therefore the animals become resistant to DNA damage. And uh, then, of course, because the gene complex is highly conserved, is present in humans in the same configuration as in, in worms, we then um, used inhibitors of the dream assembly in human cells, in quiescent human cells, and we find the exact same thing. Derepression of a plethora of DNA repair genes and resistance to distinct types of DNA damage. And we also did a proof of concept in vivo in the mice, where we can actually show that we can suppress now a DNA repair defect that is, uh, leads to premature aging. We use particularly, specifically here, uh, the degeneration of retinal cells, a post-mitotic cell type that undergoes apoptosis when DNA damage cannot be repaired. And we find that we inhibit the, uh, a, a, the, the critical kinase and assemble stream in, in uh, mammals that then we get, uh, 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 we, we can uh, repair DNA damage and we can preserve the the function of these uh, of these photoreceptor cells. Yeah, this would have been my 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 question, my last question to this topic. Um, that this is a probably an interesting therapeutic target then in the end. Absolutely. So this is this is really our vision that we could here by really um, uh, targeting the master regulator of DNA repair really enhance somatic DNA repair, and thereby really delay aging and delay 
the, and lower the risk of the development of age-related diseases as a very general mechanism because DNA damage plays a role in every cell type in our body. So the last 48 minutes we have taken a journey through your scientific career. Um, was there something that we missed talking about? I think we had a very, uh, very uh, good conversation about some of the highlights of our work. And uh, I hope that this will be really an inspiration to our listeners uh, and our viewers um, to engage themselves in the field of DNA repair and genome stability. And I think there's, there, are, there are many unexplored avenues uh, that uh, many secrets of nature that we are eager to really uncover. Yeah, thank you, Björn, for your time and for being on the show. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. We hope you enjoyed it. You can find all the mentioned references in the show notes. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. We'd love to hear from you, so please send us your feedback on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or via email at podcast at activemotif.com, and we'll give you a shout out in a future episode. For more great epigenetics content, check out the Active Motif blog at activemotif.com forward slash blog. Thanks for listening and stay tuned.